Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. A reminder that you can subscribe to the show by clicking on the subscribe via email button on the left-hand side of your screen. And then every time I upload a new show, you'll be updated in your inbox. And that's the only email you'll receive. And a reminder also that if you want to pre-order my book, you can do so at unbound.co.uk. I'll post a link on the homepage. I'm sitting in Turkey at a libertarian conference and sitting opposite me is the author Theodore Dalrymple who gave a quite wonderful presentation this morning. And uh, so, Theodore, I call you Theodore, although that is your your nom de plume, I won't give away your real name. Uh, Theodore, uh, as well as being a, a, a writer who's contributed to The Spectator and has written many books, he's also a psychiatrist. And uh, it's interesting, it was interesting to hear the kind of psychiatric take uh, on liberty, um, which is, I suppose, what your, was kind of one of the themes of your talk today. So let's start, Theodore. Firstly, thank you very much for coming on the show. And then let's start with, why don't you kind of outline what you t- spoke about this morning? Well, what I was uh, talking about this morning was the idea that people could, could should, want, and feel they ought to have uh, choice without any serious consequences to themselves and that actually we should try and produce a, a world in which people were able to make choices but they didn't take any consequences of those choices and I, and I suggested that actually that would be a pretty bad world and, and where it exists is a bad world in, in, indeed, and so we have created uh, in many ways a, a world in which you can, you can live and, and not have to face the consequences of your actions uh, because somebody, the state, comes and bails you out. Yes, and I suppose one can say it happens at both ends of the uh, economic spectrum. Uh, you might say the same of bankers, I suppose, that they had been able to escape the consequences of uh, their own uh, incompetence or fraud or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so... But on a very large scale, it happens, of course, in the, in the lowest end of the um, social scale, where people have almost everything taken care of uh, for them. Um, but they have a certain amount of money, they have a certain amount of consumer choice. But it doesn't really matter what, how they use that choice. And I suppose the theme was, in many ways, is, is that taking care of people, or the state taking care of people, ends up not making them happy. No, I don't think it does. And, uh, and um, uh, once you get a, a state of dependence, it's, it's, it's pretty wretched, and all kinds of consequences follow. OK, I mean, one of the stats that stuck out from your, for me from your talk was that the welfare state has created more invalids than the First World War. Yes, they're trying to uncreate the permanent invalids. I don't know how you do that, how you cure the... But I think if you, if you remember back in 2006, I think it was, there were two 
2.9 million people uh, uh, claiming invalidity benefit. And it was, of course, it was perfectly well known. They were not real invalids. Uh, but, but if people think of themselves as invalids or are told that they are invalids or have to behave as if they're invalids in order to get a benefit, eventually they will become invalids because it, 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 uh, yeah, they I mean, become what they imitate. Th- and, and exactly. And, and uh, I know many uh, young comedians, for example, looking at my background, who decided on what they wanted their comic persona to be, so kind of acted out their comic persona in real life until they became their comic persona. Yes. And uh, I can think of any number of comedians who've done that. But, uh, and, but that's using that process in a very creative way. But if you're, you know, you need to act out the invalidity, you know, yes. that's rather a, a, I mean, an insidious get, process. If you go into British, uh, many British towns, you'll see quite a lot of people walking with... Um, walking sticks and you think uh, actually they don't really need walking sticks and uh, but they're still using walking sticks or, or even crutches who don't need them and the question is why and the answer I think is because they're afraid of all the video cameras that are around and uh, they may actually be shown to be walking perfectly normally uh, and someone will use the the uh, the video film yeah. to uh, shop them to the authorities. That reminds me of the story, I don't know if you know this story, but the former Liverpool defender by the name of Tommy Smith, yes. who's now you know, a great defender, a famous kind of hacker, you know, tarb man football player, is now claiming invalidity benefit um, and a few years ago uh, was asked to take a kind of celebrity penalty before a game. Yes. So ran ran up and took his penalty. And then one of the Everton fans, who are, of course, Liverpool's big rivals, shopped him to the local and benefits person and said, look, how can that man be claiming in- invalidity benefit when he's just run up and taken a penalty at Wembley? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, uh, yes, and I, but I think this kind of thing, which it, it goes from outright fraud on people know that they're cheating on the one one level and then it goes up to sort of unconscious yeah if you, if you can dissimulate unconsciously then uh, then people do that as well but anyway it was on a it is on a very very large scale i mean it's it's, it's millions of people and um and it's a disaster. It's a disaster for them personally, and I think it's a disaster for the country. Well, it's, it certainly is. A, I mean, if you, if you do suffer from some kind of weakness, the onus should be on you to develop strength, not to kind of exaggerate it in order to increase yes. your benefit, I and the other, the other thing, the other consequence of this is that, um, uh, that people who are genuinely disabled, and of course there are those people, they don't get the help that they actually deserve. So it's not compassionate. It's, it's, a, it's a certain... Uh, to, to have compassion, you have to, to make distinctions between who can help themselves, who can't help themselves. And so how do you do that, then? How, does a, how, does a, how do you decide who is genuinely... Well, I'm afraid you have to exercise your medical... For example, medical judgment. But, but in, the, in the recent past in Britain... There are three groups of people who have benefited from this system. The first is the, the unemployed themselves. Because most, of course, most, most people who were on disability were just unemployed. Yeah, and they were moved on and to disability. And they were moved on yeah. to disability. Uh, it's called incapacity benefit. Incapacity benefit. Yeah, yeah. And they were moved on to that. And, they, and it was a little bit more than they were getting as, uh, as unemployed. It meant that doctors didn't have to... Um, could, could sort of get them off 
the, the necessity to search for work uh, quickly, the doctors were quite happy to, to, to comply with it. Yeah. And of course the government loved it because they could claim that unemployment was low uh, while they were paying for people to be ill pretend to be ill or act ill and eventually be ill. I mean, you yeah. you have only to see in, in towns... I've stayed in places like Klanecki, uh, for example, or Rotherham. You have only to go to these places to see that there are large, relatively large numbers of people whose incapacity is obesity. You couldn't employ them because they can't move. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, my next question is, I, I was looking at you rather dumbfounded, but I was just, well, what, what do you do, though? Do you, put, you can't kind of have, have National put them on a diet or... No, 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 I, I don't think... I, mean, I think it's, um, it's terribly tragic, actually. I mean, it, 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 it's tragic because their lives... I mean, it's a betrayal of Ernest Bevin's intentions, I would have thought. I think, I think it's a betrayal... Ernest Bevin uh, being the Bever- founder of... Oh, well, Beveridge, well, Beveridge. Oh, is uh, it? William Beveridge, the Beveridge report of... Uh, 1944, oh. and and what the welfare state. Ernest Bevan was one of the founders of the welfare. Well, state. he was, but the, oh. be, but the Bev, the Beveridge report was the the thing oh, during okay. the war, and the the idea behind it, at least officially, was that people should be given a helping hand who had fallen on hard times, not through any fault of their own, so that they could pick themselves up and, and, and live. And also there was this idea that the, there should be a freedom from want. Now, actually, that's not a very good idea, in my view. Um, there must always be the possibility of want um, and real want, because if you don't have anything to fear, this was one of my um, themes. themes, you don't have anything to hope for either. And if you don't have anything to fear and anything to hope for, what actually is the meaning of a life, especially if you have no religious belief, as most people don't. Yeah, so let's expand on that and talk about this link between uh, fear and hope. You know, let's, let's, you talked about this, this culture of, um, of where there's blame, there's a claim. <laughs> well, that, I gave that as an example of, of how if you give people the idea... Uh, I should just say, let, I'll just explain quickly yes. for, for those, because we have a lot of listeners who aren't from the UK, yes. so they might not know what that means. Do you want to, do you want to explain... Where there's blame, where, there's a claim. Yeah, where that, where that catchphrase comes from. Well, it, it, it comes from advertisements for lawyers in, uh, in um, the waiting room of our hospital, um, and the idea is that if something goes wrong with your treatment, uh, which is caused by a doctor doing something wrong, you can make a legal claim against that doctor. And, and, it, and it invited uh, the patients to remember that where... It, it's part of a huge movement in law, which is no win, no fee. Yeah, it's part of that, and, but also, of course, there's the legal aid aspect of it. You, okay. Uh, 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 but anyway, no... no the... the, the, the the whole process of suing is encouraged by giving people the impression, correctly as it happens, that they have nothing to lose financially by uh, suing someone. And actually they have uh, quite a chance of a gain because even if the person they're suing has done nothing wrong, 
he's quite likely to pay up simply because it's cheaper to pay up something than to go to court. Mm-hmm. And these are not, the figures are now not insignificant. The National Health Service is now spending um, a considerable proportion of its money on... Of its budget on, on, on legal cases? On legal cases, yes. But do you know what, what, roughly what percentage... I think it was um, it's something getting on for ten to fifteen percent. Blimey! Or, or it's, at least it's putting aside that yeah. amount, that money. And and of course the problem is the trend is to increase. And the other problem is is it, it, if, it affects the way that people practice on the of NHS because it breeds all sorts of inefficiencies yes. because presumably people will start running all sorts of checks Tests. that don't need to be de- made, well, I mean, I think prescribing much yeah. stronger drugs that needed to be... Uh, well, particularly in the testing and diagnosis, because there's... Uh, they're we just say, covering their backsides all the time. Yes. There's yeah. more rejoicing in the legal system over one misdiagnosis than over 99 correct diagnoses. Which, again, which is uh, the whole incentive is wrong. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, OK, so, so we have this culture of where there's blame. There's, and, but, of course... Um, no win, no fee, so you have this idea that there's nothing to lose, but you, once you get involved in the huge entangling net that is a legal process... You well, know, psychologically, you have something to lose. Yeah, yeah. Once you're and, in, and, ta- and time as well. You have your time, but many of the people don't have a lot to do with their time. OK. But, uh, but yes, it's their time, but it's, it does psychological damage. They become obsessed with their case. They think no, no, nothing. The cases take five years to come to a conclusion... They're obsessed with their cases. Uh, often they, they start suffering from the very uh, things that they're claiming falsely. That they yeah, this is this, this process of, of repeating something in the mind so that it actually becomes a reality. Yes. So in the case of a fraudulent case, you as a psychiatrist see people who repeat the lie in their head over and, and over and, and over. And it becomes until true it, for them. It, yeah. And, and, and then when... when, when what they believe to be a, a true or a justified claim um, is not accepted, then they become bitter. If, on the other hand, they get the money that they think they deserve, um, or they don't, I should put it like this, they, they don't get the money they deserve, they always get less than they think they deserve, but they get something if they get something. Um, now, those who are the more honest ones amongst them have to maintain their illness. They can't become better straight away the moment someone gives them uh, mm. some money because if, if they do, then they reveal themselves to themselves as fraud, yeah. uh, fr- as being fraudulent, as having committed a fraud. So, and then, of course, there are, there are no doubt some people who... who go straight away and they're completely better after the, the payment of money. And the fact is the system doesn't actually follow them up. So that, for example, if you made a claim against me and you were awarded a million pounds and I thought it was fraudulent, but nevertheless I or my insurance um, had to pay out the million pounds, there's no attempt to see whether afterwards you're... Uh, you're, you have um, you've become so much better that your claim could not have been true. So nobody ever tries to do that. And there are all other there are many other kinds of uh, the insurance companies are as fraudulent as the claimants, in my view. Yeah, because they don't use private detectives like they should often, and even when they catch to save on 
Just to save on fees? Or? Well, they have no incentive to save on, on, on claims because they simply pass them on to the customers, the cost okay. to the customers, which is itself fraudulent. I was involved in a case in which a, a man made what turned out to be a clearly fraudulent case. There was no possible explanation but conscious fraud mm. in this case. <clears throat> And I asked the insurance company, once it had been revealed that his claim was fraudulent, it wasn't even his first fraudulent claim, incidentally, um, whether they were going to charge him with fraud. They said, no, we don't do that, um, because it doesn't look good for the company, and the, the clients wouldn't like it. And I said, I'm sure your honest clients would like it very much, because they don't want to pay extra... Um, extra uh, premiums yeah uh, you know I understand I'm, I'm amazed that, that, that no so people so people will instigate a fraudulent case lose and then that's it that's no, there's it. no they don't pay any price for that no for them. and what about the cost to the person who had the fraudulent case made against him he, the doctor who's accused of some kind of malpractice for well I mean he doesn't usually pay himself directly because but I mean in terms of what the legal case the wrangling has done to his mind and his time oh that's terrible yes I mean to be to be <coughs> to be accused of something is very uh, very um, unpleasant and time uh, time consuming it undermines you but it's also very costly uh, because there's no hope of recovering the money from anybody and um, and actually, it's a taxpayer, a taxpayer on the whole, who bears the cost. And as I said, we are now talking that the NHS is putting aside 15 billion pounds a year. Uh, 15 billion, blimey! <laughs> to to for, for for legal cases. Yes. Now, are you a doctor of psychiatry? Yes, I'm a medical doctor so, and, and, a uh, uh, and a psychiatrist. Yes. Okay, so you you worked in the NHS for many years, presumably, as yes. a consultant in some way. Yes. Um, you know, what do you do about the NHS? Because, I mean, you, you understand the kind of Austrian economic small government model, and in, yes. in, a, in a kind of um, brave new Austrian economic world, there would be no welfare state. Is, do you kind of subscribe to that view? And I don't see how you can go straight from what we've got now to any kind of system where everyone has to take responsibility for his life and I, I'm not sure I can see a, a world in which there is no public um, uh, administration of what one might call charity really, yeah. it's charity uh, so I don't, I'm not sure I'm, a, I'm an absolute hardliner yeah. but I think it is very necessary to think about what we are doing and, and how we've, I mean, we've smashed up families. Now, it seems to me that the state is the father of the child, and, and, uh, and we've, uh, we've smashed up all kinds of solidarity, which don't go through the state. Even our charities, instead, through the large charities, are all, in my view, um, dishonest, fraudulent arms of the state when you give your money when you give your little I'm not going to say two shillings that shows okay. how old I am <laughs> when you give your proverbial two shillings <laughs> your proverbial two shillings uh, into the little box you think that that two shillings is going to go to some needy person to some needy person but actually when you look into the accounts of these 
organizations, you see not only are they not charities, because the government is the major or the largest single contributor to their funds, uh, but that act, the amount of your two shillings that will actually go uh, to the supposed cause is very, very small. Not all charities are the same. I don't want to say that they're all the same. Some are are very much better than others. Mm -hmm. But what is amazing is to look up, for example, the fact that the Child Poverty Action Group, for example, has no income, as far as I can tell, that doesn't derive ultimately from the government. So in what sense is it a charity? And and furthermore, it spends... uh, I can't remember the exact figure but it spends something like 80 or 90% of its income on the salaries of the people working in it. This is not what I understand as charity. No, no. I've been reading a a little bit recently about the friendly societies of the 19th century, which were a kind of... um, Mutual aid. Mutual aid and cooperatives and non-profit organisations, although in some cases profit organisations. But it was a, it was a, it was a, it was kind of like the the welfare state that the free market of the 19th century came up with. Yes. And they were effectively put out of business when people had to make national insurance contributions in 1911 because people couldn't afford to Do pay both. them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and national insurance was only really there to help the kind of 5% of people at the very, very bottom who didn't benefit from the friendly societies. Do you think some kind of friendly society model is something we should be looking to go back to? Well, it might be a very good idea because at least then um, there would be some, presumably if they were mutualised, there would be some control over what they actually did and, and how they spent their money and so on. Do you think doctors in the NHS earn too much money? Do you think they enjoy too high a status? <laughs> um. <clears throat> I never feel like I'm a customer. I always feel like I'm a, 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 a petitioner on their, ta- on their Well, time. you see, I'm not the, the relationship between a doctor and a and a patient. I must admit, should not just be a commercial one. I don't believe that. You know, you don't come to me. You know, if I'm a qualified surgeon, you say I, I feel like having my leg off today. So the doctor says, okay, well, take your leg off today because we can and we can do it perfectly safely. Yeah. And one must not laugh at this because there are people who want their legs amputated. Yeah. For whatever reason. For whatever reason. Yeah. But who don't need them. It doesn't need to be done medically. So you expect... Oh, really? Yes. I mean, well, I won't go into it. Okay, probably let's leave not. That. Yeah. But I mean, anyway, there are such yeah. people, and there are people who, if they were, f- if they could just go to a doctor and say, "Do this and do that," and the doctor would do it because it, it wouldn't kill the person, and also uh, it could be done safely. I don't. I think I believe in a system where the doctor doesn't just say to himself, "Well, this is a customer. I make money doing this, therefore I will do it." So there. The, the idea that a profession has some kind of ethical standards. But, I mean, I, I have, you know, people pay me to do a job for them, and I still want to do a good, as good a job as possible. And sometimes I will advise them, they might want a particular service from me, and I'll advise them, say, no, don't take that, take the other service, by which I earn a lot less money. Yes. So I still... It's, yes, it's not I, I th- but I think if there's an organisation, a kind of requirement of this ethical standard, I think it's quite a good idea. 
However, I agree with you that when you go to the National Health Service, you are, in effect, a pauper. It doesn't matter how rich you are, you're a pauper, because you have to more or less take what they say and all that take what they offer to give you. Now, it may be, I don't want to denigrate the NHS absolutely or the doctors, because in many cases what you get will be uh, good. Yeah. It's not, it is not true that every single case is, is, is bad. And yeah. So there are many bad cases, but there are also many good cases. Yeah. You only hear about the bad ones. You, 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 yeah. and, and, the, uh, and in fact, I, I mean, my own experience of the NHS has fortunately, I mean, of course, I'm the typical person who benefits from the NHS. I can't complain of anything that I have much. I don't think I can't think of anything. Um, The interesting thing, I think one interesting thing about the NHS is that it is definitely not an organisation that is egalitarian in its effects. On the contrary. If you look at the difference in the health of the population of the richest and the poorest people, for many years before the institution of the NHS, there was a regular uh, or a very constant relationship between, for example, life expectancy of the people in the bottom quartile uh, and the top quartile, or actually decile. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that began, the difference began to widen in 1948, and it's widened enormously since the increased expenditure on the National Health Service. So Isn't it's that funny? Isn't that amazing? And can I just, yes. drawing in an economic parallel, the gap between rich and poor yes. has got bigger under the welfare state when the welfare state was supposed to distribute wealth equally, and in yeah. fact the opposite has happened. Yeah. So it's not just wealth that's been unequally distributed, but health. But health and I, and almost certainly education, yeah, would, yeah. would be the same yeah. thing. So that the... And, and what has actually happened, I suppose, is that the... I mean, there are, you know, there are all kinds of explanations. I suppose it might be multifactorial in the case of the NHS, but certainly, um, the, I mean, there's the fact that the health of a population is not determined only or even principally by the health care to which it has access. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Yeah. So that, for example, it is claimed, I don't know whether it is true, that about half the difference in the life expectancy of rich and poor people is caused by the difference in the level of smoking. Yeah. The poor smoke much more than the rich. Yeah, that would... I guess that makes sense, yeah. So, um, uh, so there's that. And then there's the fact that, I mean, we all... Everybody knows from experience. This isn't conscious, it's just something that happens. Is a middle-class person who doesn't get what he wants from the National Health Service will make himself difficult and will get what he wants. Now, people at the lower end of the spectrum don't do that. They're not capable of it. I used to know from my experience of patients that I would have to intervene on their behalf with public authorities, like housing authorities. But you think the middle class are more pushy then than the, than the, than the oh, kind much of... more pushy, yeah. And we all know, I mean, in Africa... Because I thought a lot of middle class people just kind of accept it and with a kind of... Uh, well, no, no, you know, they're, they're much more likely to... And, of course, they're more articulate, so they're better at uh, explaining what they need or what they yeah. want and, uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, um, and they're probably more inclined to, to consult doctors of 
you know, earlier and all that kind of thing. So, um, uh, so anyway, the, but the point is that the effect of the National Health Service has definitely not been egalitarian. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, Theodore, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Do you have a website uh, that you'd like to mention or a book that you're promoting or something? I don't have a website. There is a website devoted to my, um, to my, to my work, uh, which is written by, uh, or, or should I say organised by uh, two very nice Americans, um, and it's called SkepticalDoctor.com. Uh, skepticaldoctor.com but it's spelled the American way with SK, skeptical, yeah. rather than the English way and there you, you will be able it mentions my latest book which is a collection of essays called Fair, Farewell Fear Farewell Fear Yes. very good, alright so we must all buy Farewell Fear yes, absolutely, Theodore. and not just one copy <laughs> <laughs> Theodore Dalrymple thank you very much Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 